Hello, Pedro Pearls listeners, and welcome back to another Monday re-release. We are rounding out EB Awareness Week with a webinar that was released in April of 2021 called Gene Therapy for Large Chronic Recessive Dystrophic Epidermolysis Bullosa Wounds, presented by Dr. Jean Tang, sponsored by Abiona Therapeutics. Make sure you're caught up on all of Pedra's podcasts by subscribing to the Pedra Pearls podcast channel on iTunes, Google, and Spotify. And make sure you're following us on social media at Pedra Research on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening. Thank you all very much for joining the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance webinar on gene therapy for large chronic RDEP wounds. I'm your host, Jen Dawson. I'm Pedra's outreach manager. Before I begin, I want to say thank you very much to Abiana Therapeutics, who is sponsoring this evening's webinar. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Jean Tang. She's a professor of dermatology at Stanford University Medical Center. She's the principal investigator for the EB101 Pivotal Phase 3 Vital Study. She has spoken at PEDRA meetings in the past, as well as PEDRA webinars, so it's an absolute pleasure to have her back with us this evening. Thank you so much, Dr. Tang. It's great to be here and great to talk to you about the phase three study. So as an outline, I'm hoping to go over these slides for the first 20 minutes and really use the rest of the time for questions and answers. Among PEDRA, I don't need to tell you guys too much about uh, recessive dystrophic EB. These patients, unfortunately, um, have a genetic de defect in collagen 7 that leads to an absence or loss of function of anchoring fibrils, um, and that leads to fragile, blistered skin that eventually leads to open wounds that obviously uh, cause a lot of pain and suffering. Um, as you guys know, there are lots of different uh, subtypes, you know, especially the generalized severe where you know patients have horrific wounds that cover a large surface area of their skin as shown in this picture. And many of our patients, because of the chronic inflammation and wounding, um, do pass due to metastatic squamous cell infections um, and um, even anemia and uh, cardiac um, abnormalities. Um, the economic burden is huge. Um, there's no FDA approved treatment. And oftentimes in EV clinic, um, some of our patients stop coming because over time, the physicians really don't have anything new to offer. Um, and they are the experts in their own wound dressing. And all the Mepilex, Mepatil, um, all the fancy dressings we use, surprisingly cost upwards of $245,000 a year because there's so much um, wounding and all of us know who take care of EB patients, you know, we do all these uh, prior offs and filling out, uh, especially in California, Medi-Cal forms just to get insurance to cover these things. Uh, the humanistic burden obviously is huge. Um, there's individual variations, but, um, you know, I'm very privileged to work in this patient population because they've certainly uh, taught me a lot of strength and resilience and even going through COVID, I feel like, you know, one of my patients said, I've been training for sheltering in uh, during COVID because that's what I do all the time. So, you know, as hard as this year has been, I just um, can't imagine what it is like to be um, an EB patient or a caregiver. So, um, you know, with wound care, all the rep wrappings and uh, dressings, they really don't under, um, address the underlying cause of disease. 
I certainly know in the literature in EB clinic, we use allograft products, uh, dermgraft products, um, and those work okay, especially for smaller wounds. But really for large chronic wounds, um, those are the wounds that are most difficult to heal. So the ideal RDEB treatment would really target uh, the genetic cause of the disease and really restore um, collagen 7 function uh, by keratin, uh, correcting keratinocytes. Um, we want to focus on large chronic wounds because in interviewing uh, and talking to patients, these wounds are large and they're much larger than recurrent wounds. And I know this nomenclature is a little bit new. We talk about chronic open wounds as wounds that are large and have been present for at least three to six months, depending on uh, what study you read. Whereas recurrent wounds we define as wounds that might heal and then open up, um, heal and then re-blister again. And so in some of our natural history studies, we've certainly seen that pain and itch um, and quality of life is severely impacted really by these large chronic open wounds. So what I'd like to tell you about today is some of the results from our published phase one, two A study. This was really an investigator initiated trial started at Stanford. We enrolled seven participants and uh, all of them were treated uh, from 2013 to 2017. So the longest patient has been followed for six years post-treatment um, and uh, the shortest has been four years. Um, that served as the scientific basis for uh, the phase three vital study, which is taking these EB101 graphs. And this is one of um, the first registration studies um, for uh, autologous skin grafts in this disease. Uh, you will see the clinicaltrials.gov uh, notation here, so you can look that up uh, for more details. The goal of the phase three vital is to enroll 10 to 15 participants, and each participant hopefully will have an average of at least two or three grafted wounds. So at the end of the study, 35 chronic wounds can be treated and assessed. A little bit more about EB101. So in this diagram, here's a shadow picture of a person. And so uh, we take two biopsies and they're standard punch biopsies, eight millimeters in size. We ship them overnight to the manufacturing facilities in Abiona in Cleveland, uh, where they isolate keratinocytes, um, expand them and use a retrovirus to introduce the full length collagen 7A1 gene. The keratinocytes take 10 to 12 days to mature, and the whole process ranges from 25 to about 30 days. Um, the patient then either is allowed to stay in the Stanford area or flies back in about 26 to 30 days, where the patient undergoes general anesthesia, the chronic wounds are debrided, and uh, the new autologous EB101 grafts are now sewed on. So um, this diagram basically shows you that uh, over time, what we see is um, healed wounds in EB101 treated skin and in serial biopsies. We do see linear basement membrane zone staining of collagen 7 um, and also um, anchoring fibrils. The key thing that a lot of folks ask is, you know, you showed pictures of patients with such huge wounds. 
so far for the phase three, you got to remember that the CMC or the um, chemistry and manufacturing process is very much um, a stringent protocol. So for this study, two biopsies lead to the manufacture of six um, of these autologous grafts, and they're about um, the size of an old uh, iPhone. That's the case for the phase three protocol. In the future, you know, if this is approved, then physicians can potentially do more biopsies and generate more graphs, or you can do serial grafting. So, you know, there is this potential to certainly treat more areas of skin. I'm gonna show you a few photos in patients uh, treated in the phase one, two study. So on the left-hand side, if you can see my cursor, this is a large chronic wound on a young woman's arm and C and D are the wound um, areas that are grafted. And C and graft D are shown here, both of them EB101 treated wounds. And on her anacubital fossa, we did not graft this area, and this was our untreated wound control. So at nine months, you can see the majority of the EB101 graft is intact at C and D, whereas our control, the untreated wound, um, remains open. On the right-hand side, uh, what we did was take, take a close-up photo of a baseline wound, and the dots here are the Canfield camera technology that basically shows um, the area of the EB101 graft. You can see nice wound healing at three and six months later. The lower panel shown here is a direct immunofluorescent staining. At baseline, there's no green line, and that green line basically shows you um, an antibody staining to the NC2 portion of collagen 7. So at three months, at a serial biopsy of the grafted area, you see nice collagen 7 exactly in the basement membrane zone. This collagen 7 has been detected in serial biopsies at six months and later as well. So we also got more aggressive. Um, we started treating larger areas of wounding, and this is a woman's uh, back, and she complained of 10 out of 10 pain, 10 out of 10 itch, and um, this caused considerable stress uh, on her upper back. And you can see multiple wounds that never heal, um, and perhaps the opened erosions migrate in different areas, but in this area of her upper back, there is always wounding. So in this area, we basically quilted three graphs labeled A, C, and D. And you can see a little bit of erosions um, around the edges of the graft. And over time, um, we still see persistent um, wound healing all the way up to 24 months also with collagen 7. So as a summary of the data, we're presenting the percent of wounds with 50% wound healing, and this is the gray column, or 75% wound he healing, and that's the blue column. And this is the number of months after treatment. So we're focusing at six months because this is the study endpoint. The FDA asked us to look at wound healing at six months. In the phase one, two study, we found greater than 90% of EB101 treated wounds reached this endpoint of 50% healing. Um, 
at six months, about 66% of those wounds achieve 75% wound healing. The amount of wound healing certainly correlated uh, with a reduction of pain because always when you discuss um, these large wounds with the FDA, the FDA is certainly used to smaller wounds from foot ulcers or um, um, decubitus ulcers that are smaller wounds, but the wound area healed in these EB patients are huge. So the wound area healed, if you actually calculate it as a surface area, it healed 130 centimeters squared at three months and 120 centimeters squared at six months. And so based on this data, Abiona was able to convince the FDA, the FDA is used to 100% wound healing. I think that makes sense when you're treating tiny, smaller wounds, but when you're treating these large chronic wounds, we finally got the FDA to understand that 50% healing is clinically meaningful. Because if you look at this data, about 53% of our patients on these wounds reported severe pain. But after EB101 application, instead of 53% of the wounds being painful, um, it was significantly uh, much fewer. And that decrease in pain was durable over time. So the take home message from this graph is we do see wound healing. We do see a reduction in pain. And so on that basis, and also on the safety data, you know, we were allowed uh, to start a phase three. In terms of safety, the phase one was really concerned with, you know, as a retrovirus, does this cause any systemic infection? Does this cause any immune reaction? Does this cause, you know, more squamous cell carcinoma or anything else? And so there was no treatment related SAEs or severe AEs these patients based on FDA guidance, because it's a gene therapy product, they have to be followed for 15 years. So after treatment, they're followed in person every year for up to five years and then phone calls 10 years afterwards. And so what we've done is serially collect blood, test for any retrovirus and there's no retrovirus and test for any immune reaction. And we haven't seen any systemic um, autoimmune reactions. There were two participants in the phase one, two study that did develop squamous cells. However, those squamous cells did not occur inside the um, grafted areas. And we actually took the SCC and sequenced them and made sure that there was no retrovirus in there as well. And as this audience knows, um, a lot of the adult RDEB patients certainly develop um, SCCs, and that's really uh, related to the chronic wounding and the inflammation. So in conclusion, EB101, we think could be a treatment for large chronic wounds. And certainly in the phase 1-2A study, we saw clinically meaningful reductions in wound size, and we saw pain relief. And in some cases, the wound healing was sustained up to six years. There's obviously variations um, and uh, certainly for uh, the EB101 graphs that uh, were placed on the back where it's very difficult to immobilize or if graphs became infected at some point, certainly the wound healing um, isn't as high. But I think over time we've sort of appreciated what are the factors um, that optimize wound healing 
And um, we're really hoping that the phase three um, will replicate the positive results um, in the phase one, two. So what is the phase three? After you know much negotiation with the FDA, um, this is an open labeled interventional study. Um, we have enrolled uh, five patients so far, and there's gonna be a second site opening up at University of Massachusetts. Um, it is a one-time surgical application of uh, these autologous gene therapy grafts. Um, about 12 to 15 patients that are severe RDEB will be treated. Um, at minimum, pa a patient needs to receive uh, one wound. The maximum number of grafts is six. So based on the phase one, two um, results, the phase three is focused on two co-primary endpoints. The first is the proportion of RDEB wound sites that reach 50% healing in treated versus untreated controls at week 24 or six months. And secondly, pain reduction assessed by the mean difference in the scores using a scale called Wong-Baker facies between the treated and untreated wounds. And then other endpoints, obviously, are safety, quality of life, itch, and others. Let me tell you a little bit more about this process. So patients undergo screening. We have to make sure they meet the inclusion exclusion criteria. We may have to make sure that they really do have enough chronic wounds. And so if that's the case, uh, they come in at day minus 28. Uh, we do the two eight millimeter biopsies, send that to the manufacturing center in Cleveland, Abiona. And basically uh, we let the patient know uh, when the surgery date is. And so the patient can stay in the Stanford area or fly home and come back in about uh, 30 days. Then um, they are hospitalized for seven days. They meet with uh, anesthesia, they meet with our plastic surgeon, and basically they undergo general anesthesia where the plastic surgeon uh, debrides the chronic wounds areas and just surgically uh, sews on using absorbable sutures, the uh, EB101 grafts. The patients stay in our pediatric hospital for seven days. Um, this is because we have full nursing care to assist the patients. The first seven days of engraftment are critical. We wanna make sure that the grafts don't become infected. The patient is, the pain is well controlled and um, the patient minimizes any friction or scratching to the EB101 grafts. Uh, once they complete the seven day inpatient stay, uh, they're welcome to uh, go home. There's follow-up visits uh, with a home nurse just to make sure they're doing okay. And then the requirement is that they return at 6, um, 12, and 24 weeks uh, for follow-up photographs and, um, you know, safety monitoring. Um, I mentioned the long-term follow-up that's required for any uh, gene therapy trial. Uh, for the patient, there's no cost to participate in the study and no cost passed uh, to their insurance um, provider. Um, ABONA, the sponsor, will provide hotel, flights, meals, uh, and certainly um, a caregiver can accompany the patient as well. And this is critically important, especially if it's a pediatric uh, patient. Um, what's remarkable is that you know, we have treated four patients so far since the pandemic started. And so this just speaks to how severe and serious this, you know, RDEB is, and the patients are willing to come out. 
Um, but for COVID considerations in California, the case numbers are really low, which is great, and I hope it stays that way. Um, but no matter what, um, we provide a private uh, room in the hospital um, and whatever accommodations during the travel um, we will try to do to make sure the patient and the family are as safe as possible. And then obviously, you know, thankfully, all the healthcare providers uh, at the hospital have been vaccinated and the patient will require COVID testing uh, before the surgery. So in terms of eligibility criteria, uh, we can take patients uh, age six or greater um, and they have to be medically stable and willing uh, to travel. If a wounded area has, has um, developed an SCC, we're not allowed to treat that with EB-101, but we're allowed to treat wounds where SCC hasn't developed uh, in, 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 in those wounds. And then one key thing is um, there has to be a washout period. We know there are a number of EB clinical trials ongoing now, but prior to entry of vital, the patients um, need to have washed out from another clinical trial uh, for three months. In terms of eligibility criteria, a clinical diagnosis of recessive dystrophic EB, genetic testing confirming um, recessive dystrophic inheritance, um, and then we want the patient to have a little bit of collagen 7 because we don't know how um, patients with null mutations with no collagen 7 um, may react to this. And then in terms of amount of wound healing, or I'm sorry, wounding, the patient must have 40 centimeters squared of chronically wounded areas on the trunk or extremities. And the goal in the phase three is to have matched eligible wounds. So let's pretend you have a chronic wound on the left shoulder and on the right shoulder. So that's a pair. So then we send this into our randomization scheme and uh, one side will be treated with EB-101 and one side um, will be left as an untreated control. So after six months at each of the evaluation time points, we can compare within the patient the amount of wound healing in EB-101 treated areas uh, versus untreated controls. I want to thank all of the uh, incredible study staff and physicians, my co-investigator Peter Marinkovich and Albert Chu um, at Stanford. We're really excited that University of Massachusetts is going to be a second site and that'll be great for a lot of our East Coast uh, patients as well. Um, and all of this work wouldn't have been possible without EBMRF and EB research partnerships um, as well. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Tang. Uh, that presentation was awesome. While I give our attendees a chance to ask some questions, I want to talk a little bit about the patient side. Do you have a sense of any reservations that are most common among patients right now as you talk to them about enrolling in the trial? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, some of our adolescent patients are in school, um, and especially for the pediatric patients, they really require a parent or a caregiver to be there, right? Mm -hmm. So to sign up for any clinical trial, it, it takes, you know, significant time and, and resources, right? And so always a concern is, you know, how many study visits will there be? And believe me, we try to minimize them as much as possible. And certainly, you know, the critical um, study times are at three and six months. And the six-week follow-up time, we have done that remotely by Zoom 
mainly because um, a couple of examples occurred where it was right in the middle of, you know, um, COVID. Mm -hmm. And so that worked really well. So telehealth works well in, in substituting uh, some of these visits, certainly not all. A second consideration is some of our pediatric patients are quite fearful about skin biopsies, and that's mm -hmm. completely understandable. Um, we've gotten, like others, really good at using Ativan, Versed, and other medications to really calm down uh, the patient and to reassure them that um, this is a smooth uh, process. So um, I have to say that um, overall, our patients have been pretty happy that when we surveyed the seven patients who participated in the phase one, two trial, they're waiting for more graphs and they're absolutely, you know, uh, wanting to receive more treatment. That was my next question is how has, has the reaction been from the patients who have received treatment thus far? And, and it sounds like they're very willing to come back and have more treatment. Uh, that's right. I mean, certainly, you know, sometimes we show photos of, you know, the great responders, right? And oftentimes the wound healing was great because it was maybe at a site where uh, the patient was able to pr uh, protect the graft quite well and there was no infection. Um, and, but even that picture of the upper back, you know, that patient is desperately waiting for the phase three to finish. So Abiona hopefully can manufacture more grafts because so many of our patients, you know, we're only covering, uh, you know, a small percentage of all the wounds uh, on their skin. Has the study included any surveys on the mental health of the patients before and after treatment? Yeah, absolutely. There are quality of life uh, surveys um, and, um, you know, that data is it's currently being collected, so I, I can't really uh, speak about some of those results. Um, but certainly anecdotally, mm -hmm. you know, we had one patient who said, especially on the upper back, she gave a beautiful patient webinar uh, recently hosted by Deborah, where, you know, just the oozing, the pain, and the time for dressing changes was so significant mm -hmm. that really in the phase one, two, we asked the patient, where are the most significant wounds that wouldn't be impactful uh, for your life if they were to heal? And so they gave us the worst wounds. And so we tried to treat them. And in many cases, um, there was great wound healing. And um, we had another patient who also spoke at a Deborah seminar. And he said, you know, my feet, they're constantly wounded. I'm afraid to walk, I'm afraid to leave um, outside my house. And after grafting several months later, he took his first uh, tourist walk in uh, New York Central Park. And he said, mm -hmm. this has changed my life because now I can walk comfortably and now I can do some things that other people can do. But Jen, to your question about quality of life, I mean, I don't think anybody knows, you know, how much of their skin you really have to replace um, to really make such a big impact. So I really hope that, you know, there's a, a couple of really exciting clinical trials in EB, and I hope they're all successful because this is certainly a very, um, you know, deserving and unfortunate patient population. Um, okay, so question coming from um, one of our attendees. Are you worried about long-term senescence of graft keratinocytes? And does the basement membrane regain normal architecture, maybe on electron microscopy? Yeah, hi, Reed. This is a really great question. The long-term senescence is, is really 
especially if you are putting um, uh, a retrovirus in adult uh, somatic keratinocytes, you know, those will only proliferate after a certain amount of time um, and then senesce and die out. So when we are seeing wound healing this long, after a year or two, what we know is some of the epidermal stem cells must um, receive um, the retrovirus. And that's the only reason why they can continue to express collagen seven and we can continue to see wound healing. In terms of the basement membrane architecture, it does look uh, pretty similar uh, to normal skin. Um, the interfollicular epidermis um, looks similar. And on electron microscopy, depending on where you sample, you certainly can see um, more anchoring fibrils as well. The caveat is, you know, this is a phase one, two study. We only treated seven patients and, you know, certain biopsies and not all wounds were biopsied. Um, so I hope that answers your question. Do you think that skin biopsies are always going to be necessary? Could you potentially obtain keratinocytes or keratinocytes uh, from blood samples, uh, pluripotent stem cells, for example? Um, right now, as a research project, uh, Tony Oro's lab at Stanford, um, you know, we are still doing biopsies, but taking fibroblasts and keratinocytes that are from adults or adolescents and putting in the Yamanaki factors to induce these adult somatic cells into pluripotent stem cells. Now you have a bank of the patient's stem cells and you can use the same um, retrovirus to put in wild-type collagen 7, or potentially you could use CRISPR-Cas9 technology to correct the actual mutation. And then you would have corrected pluripotent stem cells. Um, you know, I think uh, what you're suggesting is a great idea. Uh, these biopsies are so difficult. Why can't you um, create pluripotent stem cells uh, uh, from, uh, you know, lymphocytes? Um, you know, I don't know enough about that. Maybe uni or others can comment about that. But I, I think um, I think those are great ideas. And I think the hardest part is, you know, as researchers um, and clinicians, um, these are all wonderful ideas. But sometimes it requires precedence uh, from the FDA. And I can't tell you, you know, how hard it is uh, sometimes to do that, especially with a rare disease. Or special instructions given to patients after the intervention. Yeah, for sure. So these are uh, sutured on um, graphs um, that have been placed on um, really um, a piece of gauze. Um, so the epithelial sheets are stapled on uh, to gauze and the entire gauze with the epithelial sheets are sewn on um, to the wounds. And so the special instructions when they go home are really, you know, to use um, careful wound dressing and, you know, not ask the patient to sit in the bath, you know, for the first uh, two weeks, uh, not have a direct shower head pressure uh, on any of the grafts. And certainly uh, because the grafts are placed using absorbable sutures, right? Don't pull it off if it starts um, uh, starting um, to, uh, if some of the um, sutures are falling out. So just kind of leave them in place. And this is why the home nursing visits and the telehealth visits are uh, so important because, um, you know, this is new for the patient. Okay, besides the difference in vectors, retroviral versus HSV versus Lenten virus, 
Could you briefly comment on the difference between the topical gene therapy approach of Abiona versus Crystal versus Castle Creek? Um, yes, I you know don't know much about some of the details, but I think um, you know there um, is a theoretical concern that you know retroviruses um, you know have less control in terms of insertional mutagenesis. You know what we see from these. Uh, 42 treated wounds and seven patients with long-term follow-up for six years, we haven't seen any negative uh, side effects uh, from the retrovirus. In terms of the efficacy of each of these vectors, um, you know, I'm not, um, you know, a, a retrovirus or a viral expert, so I can't really comment on the efficiency of transduction. In terms of a topical versus surgical versus an injection approach, I think all of these, you know, make sense. I do think, you know, some of the wounds that are being treated are, are a bit different. And I know that uh, for um, the EB101, um, you know, skin grafting, it does make sense to target large chronic wounds, especially because they lead to, you know, pain and itch and um, are associated with a worse quality of life. For the patient that had grafts on his feet, what is the time that they were not allowed to walk and the grafts were allowed to heal? Right, for my, um, you know, uh, plastic surgery colleagues, the most critical time period uh, for graft take is the first two weeks. So what we say is, you know, seven days in the hospital, especially the ones on the feet, please don't walk during that time. We'll help you get out of bed, use the restroom, you know, you can sit in a wheelchair. And then when you're home, please don't use your feet and walk uh, for day seven to day 14. But afterwards, once the um, uh, gauze has fallen off and the absorbable sutures um, have uh, been absorbed, then the patient is allowed the normal activities of daily living. So, you know, you really are, clinical trials is really a struggle. And on this webinar, know this, right? So if you heal some wounds on the feet, you know, you can't say for a clinical end, trial endpoint to the patient, don't use your feet, don't walk, and don't do other things that give you joy, because that was the purpose, mm -hmm. you know, of the patient receiving these graphs, right? Um, and we said to the FDA, my goodness, you know, if, especially on young children, you know, if we heal certain parts, they are naturally going to do more activity and that will potentially lead to, um, you know, uh, you know, graft friction or, 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 you know, speed up any of the loss, but that's okay. I mean, in the end, the phase three is controlling, it is comparing wound healing with the grafted areas versus ungrafted areas. So for that patient, if we were to treat in the phase three on the feet, what makes sense is to pick uh, similar wounds on the feet, hopefully on the right versus the left, treat one side with the graft. So the activity is similar on both feet. And let's see what is wound healing at three months and six months. Uh, this is a great question. You mentioned a decrease in pain. Was there any decrease in overall sensation or any functional deficits? Yeah, um, you know, you, you great, raise a great point. I mean, you know, do these graphs behave like normal skin? Are we able to feel vibration, heat, um, you know, all of these things? You know, those are great questions. I, I, I don't 
No, because we didn't ask those questions. We were so focused on, on really pain and itch or, you know, any, you know, infection or anything like that. But what I do know is that um, these graphs are taken from uh, keratinocytes, right? So you won't have the same adnexal structures um, that you would um, see in normal skin. So, um, you know, what we always ask them is compare, you know, pain and itch relative to, you know, the baseline open wound. And for so many of our patients, it's the pain and itch that really um, is the most overwhelming sensation. Thank you. Uh, we look forward to the next time we can check in on this study. And again, if anybody has any questions, just send us an email.